Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Your Boat, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. If you'd like a signed copy, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. Also, I'm very excited to tell you about my new novel, Careering, coming in March. It's an office rom-com where the love interest is the job itself. Waterstone says, Careering is a caustically funny take on modern womanhood, a hilarious dark comedy about two magazine employees who stage a chaotic rebellion against the jobs that have sucked them dry. Your book listeners can pre-order their copy from Waterstones right now. It's a great present for future you and the very best way to support the podcast. Now on to today's guest, the poet and novelist Ben Okri, OBE. A Booker Prize winner for The Famished Road in 1991, he's written for the screen, stage and page. His latest book, Every Leaf a Hallelujah, a collaboration with the illustrator Diana Ajete, is a moving environmental fairy tale for children and adults. We discussed Proust, Walt Whitman and the nature of reality itself. I really wanted to ask you about something you said um, in an interview a couple of years ago. When you are hungry, it seems all the books you're reading are full of feasts. And I would love to hear about any books with feasts that you find remarkable or great reading or great eating. Ah, books, with, books with food in them. Um, and what I'm reading at the moment is um, kind of working my way through the, the lengthy uh, meditations of Proust. I'm on volume three of um, A La Recherche. And... Um, that's that's full of food in a in in in, in a kind of indirect way. It doesn't direct, it doesn't describe or talk about food directly. But people are often at feasts and at dinners, and he do, he does like actually describing food being, uh, as it's as it's prepared, as it's laid out on the table. Not so much the preparation of it. I don't think he's that much interested in the preparation. Although he does have a um, uh, house a housekeeper who, you know, has a a particular market she goes to to get very special ingredients for the fam- for the family cooking. So there's a great, a great there is a great sense of um, of gastronomy and of um, pleasures of 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 food. And he, he makes a relationship between that and, and and reading and and the text in 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 some way. There's a there's a delicious eatability about the way he uh, describes. Not just food, but you know, clothes, 
um, parties and people. I love that idea of the text being edible. And I think that if um, the collection were reissued tomorrow with you on the cover saying there's a delicious eatability to this, um, millions of new readers would discover Proust. And for sh- to my shame, I know the bits that everyone knows, like the Madeleines, but I've never actually read um, Alaricia to the Tompadou. Um I'd love to hear about what made you pick the book up. Is it have you been reading um, those volumes for a while? Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. When you read Alaricia, you make a you make a kind of a. It seems like a lifetime's commitment um, <laughs> because they're they're just they're just so many volumes, and each volume is is vast. And um, he, he he writes in a he writes in a very well semi poetic way with kind of rich, long sentences. Uh, they require a great, a great deal of attention. And it seems difficult at the time you're reading it. Um, and sometimes even seems slightly, slightly punitive. But actually, when you're not reading it, you really do miss being in the richness of that world. It's a very, very, very strange, very, very strange thing. He does, it doesn't feel like you when you're reading, but you, he immerses you in a, in a world that you cannot get or get to in any other way. And it's not just a, a world as in, uh, as in France or France in a particular time. It's also the world of his mind. It's the world of his sensibility. It's the world of the way he sees things. And he sees things in extremely unusual ways. A, he's a realist, but there's, a, there's an edge of, um, of kind of romantic poetry about, 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 about the way he writes and about his mind. It's also an extremely perceptive a human being, uh, and every page is rich with um, a kind of indirect wisdom in a way. It's a very, very strange book. It's not a page turner, but it, but it is a mind turner. <laughs> oh, I love that description, and I really love the idea of reading a book. And I've had those moments where something feels quite dense and quite laboured, and I've got to read the sense the same sentence four or five times, and I think, oh, it's not going in, and I'm stupid. And then I go away from it and I think, oh no, it's haunting me. I'm still thinking about this. I can't stop thinking about it. It's, it's a tension there, I think, but a really great tension. Um, are you reading other things at the same time as you read A La Recherche or does it have your full attention? When I say at the same time, I don't mean, you know, simultaneously, <laughs> but in well, terms of in your, in your re- general reading life. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to be reading uh, two books at the same time, which I'm sure people do. Uh, I, 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 knew, I, knew, I knew a professor um, who, you know, walking across the lawn, would be seen actually reading two books, had a book in one hand. Um, it's like he couldn't make up his mind which book he wanted to be in. Very striking image for me of the, uh, the temptations of reading. I'd love to know what those two books were. Oh, I, th- I, think, I think one was a, a, medieval, a medieval novel and the other was a, a, some Latin. Yes, I would like to know too, but I think... I. One was on Scipio Africanus. That's right. They were very dense books. They were not sort of like uh, modern detective novels, um, unfortunately. <laughs> Could you sort of want, you know, to be like, you know, Charles Dickens in one hand and the Beano in no, the that other? Be, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? <laughs> Shakespeare in one hand and uh, what, would you, what, would you, what, would, what would your equivalent be for, 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 for Shakespeare? <laughs> well, I was thinking it'd be a sort of a contrast, so some kind of comic or, you know, the novelization not a graphic of, um, novel yeah but although i think you know there are some graphic novels that are very sort of um 
well written and profound. And your book, your new book, Every Leaf, Hallelujah, it's so, the illustrations are just so beautiful and bright and they really work so well with the text. And I really wanted to know about your your relationship um, with the artist and Diana, how you came to work with her and if you were sort of introduced or if you knew that she was the person that you wanted to oh, make Oh, Diana, Diana, Diana's... Um... I didn't know Diana at all. I've, I only know her work uh, from, the, from the New Yorker. She's an illustrator at the New Yorker. The question came up as to who was going to uh, illustrate this book, even before I decided to write it. And it was clear that we had to have the person in mind before I wrote a word. Um, not that what they do would in, in any way influence, but I think it, I think it just helped in some, in some way to know the personality of the person who's going to be uh, transfiguring your work, because that's what they do. They sort of, you know, illustration. Um, I think if you know your work has been illustrated, you you do write in a slightly different way. And um, I, I I love I love her her spirit as it comes through her work. We went through we, we we researched a lot of her work, and I just knew immediately that she's the she's the she's the one I wanted to work with. It's it's very expressive, but it's also something slightly fragmentary, slightly slightly incomplete, sometimes elongated, very, very, very um, affected by, by certain uh, African batik traditions. There's a, there's a way of elongation, there's a way of combination of, of, of the morphologies of bodies. There's just a way that um, she draws human beings and animals. Not, it's not realistic at all, uh, that, that, I, that I loved. And I just, I, I just felt that partnering that with the kind of story I was telling uh, really would be wonderful. I've spoken to her a few times, and um, she comes across quite differently from her work. She's she's uh, she's very gentle. Uh, her work is gentle too, but there's a there's a kind of rangy, extravagant quality. What did you like about her work? I think that on the page, I love those shapes and those curves, and it complements your words so well because there's something really propulsive about it. It's that feeling of being pulled in, and it's elegant and playful and bold all at once and there's a a confidence to it and it doesn't shout but it speaks and you know what you were saying about this fierce isn't quite the word and you and it doesn't overwhelm but there's a really clear sense of it and even though sort of stylistically I mean I, I don't really know as nearly as much about art or illustration as I'd like but you know every page does look so very different it almost feels like there are if I was sort of, you know, browsing in a bookshop and, you know, looking at different pages, the, you wouldn't necessarily, the styles aren't sort of obviously all alike. And yet they really do sort of sit together so beautifully. And there is a sense of, of breadth and range, um, much like a tree or in nature that, you know, you can sort of, you find multitudes and so many things that are so very different, but they're all united in the same space and that, you know, a a plant or a tree or anything living can host so many different lives. I think, I think it also helped that she was, um, I, I hope she doesn't mind my saying this, uh, that she was pregnant with her daughter at the time she was working on this. So there was a sense of, um, well, there was a double sense of fertility, the fertility of nature and, and of motherhood, I think, that really informed um, her illustration. Um, we, talk, we talked about that a lot. Um, and she was very conscious of it. She kept she kept referring to it. Um, have you have you ever experienced or spoken to people who've experienced that kind of simultaneous condition? I know that this 
you know, the sort of fecundity and making something. And I wonder if that's where that's part of the confidence of it, that when you are, I would guess, you know, embracing the sort of, you know, motherhood and pregnancy and going on that journey, you've got to be, I think, sure and confident and resilient for You've got to be this brave. person who's coming. You've got to be brave yeah. in a way that maybe brave. we can't always be brave for yeah. ourselves. Yeah, um, absolutely. Really, back to books, I really wanted to ask you about something else. I read that, um, that I believe you said that your father, he was very keen on having books at home for you to, to read. No, he's a classicist and a lawyer and he's a great, great reader. And um, yeah, and had a ter- terrific library, which he brought back. To, to Nigeria with him. And you took that library all the way from London, is that yeah, right? Yeah, of course, of course. If you have a great library in London, you're going back to Nigeria, what, what will you do with it? Bring it back with you. Because it's, because it's invested with your, um, well, with your, your travels, your time there. Books, books, that have, books have that quality, don't they? They absorb, they absorb the space in which they've been and they, 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 they carry it with them. You know, if you, I know people who, you talk about books that they've read, um, that they've enjoyed. And they say, oh, yes, I, I bought that book in Japan or I bought that book in New York. Um, the place that they bought the book is, is, is in a way part of the, the feeling and the reading and the memory of the actual book itself. It's, uh, it's, it's... So, I, so, I, so I think for dad, it was, it, it was, it, it, that was important. I felt that. So the book was invested with, with, uh, with, with England, even when it was in Nigeria. I was wondering about the books that he was the most passionate about sharing with you and the first books you read that your father, you know, had read and loved and, and wanted you to read? No, our tastes were very, our tastes were very different. Um, and, um, he, you know, he, when, he, when he went back to Nigeria, I was, I was still very young. I was, I was about six, seven, eight. And, and he went straight back into professional life as a lawyer in Nigeria. And I wasn't really in any way allowed to sort of read his books I was my job at the time as he told it to me was not to read the books uh, but to dust them uh, because books in because books in Nigeria tend to gather a lot of dust and uh, my job was to dust them and not to read them I remember that specific instruction um, and for, for years afterwards I've often wondered whether it was um, a deliberate um, ploy on his part telling me not to read them but to dust them thereby inducing in me a kind of curiosity um, making them somewhat forbidden and therefore making them interesting. Um, I don't know, but he had a, he had an excellent collection of Dickens, um, Shakespeare, all, all the classical works that you'd expect. Um, really, it's, it's from him I got my sense of, of 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 the classical. You know, the the the, the Greek classics, the Romans, because he he read Greek and Latin. He was of that of that generation. Um, I, I think it was I think it was the I think it was the Greeks. That I inherited from him directly, um, Plato and Aristotle. He 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 loved his he loved his Plato. Um, we used to have long arguments about the uh, the uh, things. I remember growing up, I'd read one of the dialogues and I'd just start arguing with Dad about um, what constitutes uh, being. What whether 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 there was an uh, chair out of which all other chairs were made. And where ideas came from, um, and and stuff like that. So for so, in terms of what I got from Dad as a direct reading legacy, I would say it's the Greeks, not the Greek playwrights, more the Greek philosophers. I think it's incredible how 
as you know what you were saying about place and that we always think of where we found our books as well as how we found our books and what's what's in them but also you know those people that when you got a reader in your life and you had those conversations whenever you read those books or see those books you bring those people to the experience with you as well have you changed your mind about anything in Plato is there anything that your father argued and you've now come around to his way of thinking or are you still quite sure in what you were initially setting out to say uh, I think a really transforming moment for me was um, arguing about the nature of reality uh, with, with, uh, with dad and about philosophy in general, uh, about the philosophizing um, nature of, of different nations, because I'd already graduated. I was, I'd also read a lot of modern philosophy, well, modern at the time. And um, I, was, I was asking him about... about, about uh, the na- about the nature of reality and how we know that things are there uh, and that that exist, what proof we have of the reality of things. Because I was just fascinated at the time by by what what constitutes reality, as I as I as I still am. Um, and I remember him saying to me, "Oh, but we, but it's not just the Greeks. We have our philosophers too, um, who deal with reality." I remember him saying. And I said, oh, I was very surprised. He says, oh, really? We have our Plato's? He says, oh, yes, of course. And I says, where? And I was expecting him to give me a list of names, which he could very well have given. There are many excellent African philosophers. Um, but that's not what he meant. He meant something else. Uh, he made a gesture that included the air. And I remember looking around, and I didn't see anything that he was referring to. And I thought he was just using a, a dad thing to bring an argument to a close. Um, and the years went by. I was in London, uh, learning to write, trying to write about certain certain realities back home in Nigeria, finding finding it difficult using the methods that we've been uh, we've been taught. And I remember that gesture, and I knew exactly away from home um, what he what he meant. And he he meant that um, there's a different order of reality. I said, "There's a different order of reality that that uh, that I should be aware, that I should be aware of," and I knew what he meant, and and that began a, a major transformation in the way I, in the way I wrote. Um, but it took a, it took a while to find the right kind of tone um, in which to incorporate that. He meant that he meant that the the, the philosophers that I that I that I needed um, they're they're in the space, they're in the air, they're part of the the, the spiritual tradition of the land. Yeah. Does that make sense to you, Daisy? It does. It really does. And I think it's the most extraordinary gift a person can give you. And I think books often do that too, where the lessons and the wisdom, you know, initially it's hard to to configure it and hard to understand it. And then there is a moment later where everything clicks and it's, um, you know, it's like something kind of blooming or bearing fruit, you know, long after it was initially planted, but it just happens, you know, at the right moment. I think that's a, an incredible memory. And I'd love to hear about um, which authors do you think have taught you the most about storytelling? Well, we'll have to go back to Homer, I'm afraid. My first reading of the Odyssey was, was um, alarming in what it made me aware of what was possible. There, 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 was, a, there was a simplicity. There is a simplicity uh, that is extremely rich and extremely difficult at the same time. 
that Homer has, when you begin to read something like the Odyssey, well, whatever translation you choose to read it, doesn't really matter, really, whether you read it in, in, in verse or whether you read it in a prose translation. It's, we're talking about storytelling. The, the, way, the way they're able to sort of, the way Homer, some say it's, 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 a, it's a group of people, individual, where is able to configure a world with such simplicity of means um, still remains, to my mind, kind of staggering, actually. We get more complex, we get more complicated, we, we pile on descriptions, we, we pile on our phrases, um, but a quarrel and someone's response to that quarrel. And already armies are out there on, on, on the shore of a, of, of a land in which you can see towers and people behind uh, their walls, terrified of these um, invaders, these soldiers who are camped out there and been camped out there for 10 years. This is the Iliad or the Odyssey, um, Odysseus with his men on the way back and constantly being hustled and diverted by gods and goddesses who are against them. And yet this is a, a simple story of, of homecoming. Yeah, I, uh, Homer, really, Homer really, yeah, really illuminated for me how rich and how many, how multidimensional uh, true storytelling can be. And I think it's because it reminded me of, uh, of, 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 of my African universe, reminded me it's, um, it was a very close parallel to the world that I, I grew up in, which is a world of gods and ancestors, a world in which the dead are present and are sometimes summoned and spoken to, and in which, you know, you can't tell a story that doesn't pass through all these realms. Sometimes the oldest are the best, strangely mm, enough. Absolutely. And it sounds as though that really chimes with, you know, what your father was saying about the there being so much more to, you know, reality and the, the question of what is. Absolutely. When were you reading The Odyssey? Yeah, I read The Odyssey as a, I read the Odyssey as a child in London in a very, very simplified version. And I, I think I just read the Odyssey. I read the Odyssey and the Iliad through all the different um, permutations of, of reading ages um, all through my life. And my, my daughter's doing the same thing now. Um, she's, she's, not yet, she's not yet five. Um, but from about three, four, she was already reading uh, tales from Homer uh, of the Odyssey and the Iliad. And when she's about, 10 like me she'll read a different version for that age and when she's about 15 16 she'll read the the, the adult version and that's how I, I I've, I've always been reading um Homer it's been it's been one of the great constants uh in my in my reading life there's a moment in the Iliad when Achilles uh just walks away from a group of people and the air about him changes and he looks to the side and there's his mother the goddess she just seemed to appear out of the air. And Homer doesn't bat a pen lid, if you can uh, <laughs> accept, <laughs> accept the, this, this new phrase. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't bat an eyelid in that. There, there's, no, there's no stylistic stress in making that reality work um, on, 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 on the page. There's no, there's no sweat at all it just it just happens and she's there and they have a conversation absolutely incredible 
you read that now um, and you realize how difficult that would be for us mm. to do with 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 great with simple conviction not not great conviction because too much conviction conviction really doesn't mean that you don't really believe it i know what you mean and i think children you know when we're children we read so wisely because there are places where i think we sort of demand detail but there are you know so often if something is told with the right amount of clarity and gravity as a child you think well yes of course and you embrace those details of that question and it's only when we're older that other things start to creep in uh, which books are you really excited about sharing with your daughter or that you shared with her already other than the odyssey well i'm absolutely delighted that she loves she loves uh, she loves she loves the odyssey and loves homer um shakespeare she yeah you see the thing is the thing is i never had books forced on me i never had books suggested to me in that way books were just around and i discovered them and that's how i am with her i just let the books be around and leave it leave leave it to her curiosity and and to her and to her interest nothing beats the natural curiosity of people really nothing beats the the direction that one's heart goes when one is discovering books for oneself. Almost all my, almost all my great discoveries, um, my great reading discoveries were well, mostly accidental. Very few of them have come from other people. When people say, oh, you should read, should read this book, it's really, really, really wonderful. Very, it doesn't often really work for me. Um, I have to go in a roundabout way to make my discoveries. When I go to a bookshop, I never go to the books recommended. Um, <laughs> I just wander around and go into corners. I look at books that are, you know, odd. Books that are, you know, one one finds one's own way, but there just there just has to be a way there to be found, if you know what I mean. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
We'll be back to Ben soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Wonder, a poetry collection edited by Anna Sampson in collaboration with the Natural History Museum. When the world has seemed especially difficult to live in, I have turned to this book and been moved and delighted by it. Poets include Ruth Awolola, Sylvia Plath and Gerard Manley Hopkins, all celebrating the majestic and the delicate. Wonder, edited by Anna Sampson and published by Macmillan, is out now. Now back to Ben. What was the last book you found and bought in a bookshop? Oh, I don't know. I found... um... Wonderful editions of uh, Chateau's du Palm, um, Stendhal. I found uh, uh, lovely, it was a lovely biography of Walt Whitman. Um, and nobody would recommend that really here. Oh, tell me about that because I love his poetry, but I know very little about him other than, you know, the sort of what we all think we know. Yeah, well, Walt Whitman is a, is a, Walt Whitman is a most interesting case because it's not what people think at all. And this biography is by Paul Paul Zweig. It's called The Making of a Poet. Um, and I think it came out, well, about 10, 15 years ago. And um, it just completely um, rearranges your, your perception of, of Mr. Mr. Whitman, because he's actually someone who actually invented his persona. He invented himself because he's a journalist. Um, and this book just goes through quite, quite carefully, quite rigorously, all the pieces um, um, that he wrote, um, his journalistic pieces, and assembled from that a different kind of portrait of, of Walt. And apparently a lot, of his, a lot of his journalism were kind of a blind for the accumulation of details that he needed for, um, for Leaves of Grass. So it's actually trying to locate the poet through the journalist, which I, which I think is uh, interesting but inconclusive um, because you can never really locate a, a poet even through the methods by which to accumulate the elements of their poetry. You still have to look somewhere else. So it's a, it's a very factual investigation um, of the sources of the poetry, looking for evidence of it outside of the man outside of the poet. You Can Never Locate a Poet would be a great title for a book. And I love this idea of that enigma. And I really loved uh, The Lonely City by Olivia Lang. Um, I don't know if you've read that book, but she talks about different um, different artists in New York and their experience of living in New York in the sort of the mid to late 20th century. And I know lots of people have written lots of things about Andy Warhol, but I think she really captures this the myth making and the vulnerability and how he chose to live as a cartoon and sort of built this carapace and yeah you know I was completely wrong about Walt Whitman because I thought he was this you know poet who was absolutely in tune with nature but I'm and you know that was sort of how he wanted to express himself the most but I'm really curious now about this man who you know, sort of built himself and chose how we remembered him. And um, as a poet, do you feel better or perhaps more equipped to kind of, you know, look for clues or, you know, to understand the, the mysteries of poetry and other poets? Or is it a wholly subjective enterprise? No, it's a, it's a, it's a wholly um, doomed enterprise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, just just forget it. I've read so many biographies and so many um, uh, meditations uh, on on T. S. Eliot, on Yeats, um, on Christopher Kigbo, and they don't get anywhere. They just they just they're just good to read because they give you um, uh, additional pleasures um, when you go back to the poetry, uh, but reveal absolutely nothing about how they came to. Write those, write those poems. I think it's an impossible um, task because I think because poetry is partly happens in a magic place um, inside inside consciousness, um, stimulated by some minor or major facts or event outside of oneself. Um, what is located on the outside just bears absolutely no relation at all. Um, that T. S. Eliot was having a nervous breakdown doesn't begin to explain. <laughs> Um, um, the wasteland at all. So I think the thing to do is really, unfortunately, just to live in the live in the verse, live in the work, incarnate incarnate the the the, the beauty and the complexity. In, in short, reread. Go to the original source. Yeah, dwell, there, in it. dwell in it. I'd love to know if there are any sort of contemporary poets or new poets or young poets that you'd like to read I was going to say that you'd recommend to me and the listeners I know how you feel about having things recommended to you so perhaps you wouldn't want to to recommend back but I would be very curious and interested to hear about any new voices that that you found lately that you're enjoying well what I what I what I would say um as being being very averse to uh, recommendations is um there's so many magazines um uh podcasts magazines of young black poets young black writers um, young modern poets there's um, a whole extraordinary scene of 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 rap poetry uh, that is alive right now and people should just expand their their their, their tastes people always uh, the reason i find recommendations not working is because you're passing on your your sensibility and your particular taste Onto onto someone else whose tastes and sensibilities are, are are different. I think to encourage people to just look outside their 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 normal world, um, and I say that I say this with a certain kind of a poignancy because I'm so aware of how people uh, read within their within their class, within their nations. It's one of the most depressing things about. About, about the world for me. Um, you meet people, you start a conversation and they only read they only read themselves, they read their class, they read their nations, they read their upbringing. Um, their tastes are you know fully fully formed by their, by, their, by, by their cultures. It's very hard to get people to shift and to fall in love with something outside of that. It's, 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 a, it's a rare people who are genuine explorers and adventurers in, in, in the art of reading. And I've, you know, I've been around, and I say it with sadness. So for me, it's not a specific recommendation, but just simply to read outside your normal boundaries, read outside your universe, read outside the the world that you know. But then it's it's probably a futile thing because I've been saying this for years, and it's done absolutely nothing. I interviewed Britt Bennett recently, and Britt said in the interview the way that we talk about, especially sort of you know, well-meaning white people wanting to read black writers and she was saying it's not like eating a broccoli 
you know, don't read because it's sort of virtuous and, and worthy. You know, read as far outside, you know, your sort of background and, you know, don't read yourself and go beyond because that's where the excellence is that if you don't do it, you're going to miss so many really really stunning brilliant books reading is what will save us all that we have to reading is the only way that we can understand each other and you know and listen to each other before we speak yes i i i I totally agree but what i was saying wasn't in relation to race because i'm saying this I'm, i'm saying this you know aware of friends in nigeria who only read nigerian books and friends in African-American friends who just tend to read just African-American books. I think it's just, it's just a, I think it's just familiarity, really. Uh, but I think, it's, I think it's a lazy familiarity because the very nature of reading itself already, already presumes the elasticity of the mind's power to imagine, uh, imagine things, you know, beyond uh, its experience. And it's, 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 that, it's that more than anything else. It's not so much missing brilliant books. It's just simply expanding one's humanity, really. Expanding one's powers of, 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 of empathy. It's expanding one's sense of the horizons of the world. Have them shifted and pushed back uh, uh, a, a little bit. I, I, think, I think reading is not just kind of like fundamental to civilization. I think it's crucial to, to, be, crucial to being human. No, I, I agree entirely. I think that's, that's very, very wise. And... I'm a person who I often, you know, I read for comfort. What do, you say, what do you mean when you say you read for comfort, Daisy? It's because, I've, you know, books I love, especially books that I read as, you know, a, a child or a young person um, that evoke particular feelings. And I want to be pulled back into, into those feelings and into that world. And I try to make sure that's not the only reason I read and that's not you know, true of every book I read. But I think that, you know, especially perhaps because we've been, everyone has been through this very difficult time collectively and we're all looking for different, you know, ways to to self-soothe. And I think there are lots of readers who, you know, at the moment, those are the books that we're reaching for. And and it takes different forms, you know. I think there are lots of people who who were suddenly in the throes of the pandemic, like, you know what I'm going to read? I'm going to read Camus. I'm going to read the plague, and they don't, right? No, I, I think so. I think some people were. They thought it, it could be worse. It could be. It could be like in the plague. One of the things I love about fiction, especially, is there can be as much sort of sociological truth in fiction as in nonfiction, and it reminds us that m- most of our problems have existed in some form for hundreds of years and it's sort of you know back to the the odyssey and the reason you know i think that we're talking about it and that your daughter is reading is that thematically that is what stays with us maybe we are reading for comfort more than we have and staying in that comfortable place and not wanting to challenge ourselves so much because we've all been through something quite challenging quite real together yeah i think there's a lot in your theory actually um because i know a lot of people who who wanted to read as it were, to match the experience they were going through. They wanted to read their Dostoevskys, wanted to read their, you know, their plague, plague books, and started with, you know, really good intentions, but actually segued to things that warmed them, things that um, made them feel, <laughs> made them feel safe. But, you know, the curious thing about 
um, even books that are written about very tough experiences like the war or plague is that, um, and I, I got this, this, this was something I, uh, a perception I, I got that was uh, stimulated by a conversation that uh, Margaret Hadwood, Atwood had. She was in conversation recently for, 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 for the Penn Congress. And they were talking about books that are very rarely as horrible as the things that they write about. And I was, and I was, and I was struck by that, that I think it's the nature of the human spirit, that even if you're writing about years of imprisonment or, you know, uh, a plague or people dying or a massacre, that the writing itself can never be as bad as, 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 as the reality. And I think it's because of the very nature of writing, um, we, it's like painting. We introduce a film a quality over this terrible experience that makes it possible for us to read it. So by, by that, I mean the very act of transfiguring a horrible experience into story is already to sprinkle on it the, the sugar quality of the, pill, of the pill, or is already to sprinkle over it that which makes it possible for us to, to read it. Um, so it has been simplified, it's been removed a little bit, um, in fact, considerably, from the horribleness of the experience. And that's what happens when raw experience gets translated into, into story, um, into literature. It's as if there is something in us that understands that the rawness of experience can be too much, that it needs something around it by which we can begin to approach that experience, but never really enter into it in all of its horribleness. Does, does, does any of this make sense? Absolutely, it really does. And I think, you know, once again, we're back to what exists and, and what is real and what is fact, because I think so much horror is in the anticipation and the way something is felt and the way it, ex it is experienced. I think so many of the most awful, dreadful things the human being goes through it's about the pure imagining of it even seconds before it happens and the only way it can be captured on a page is at a remove that you can read about a horror and you can empathize and imagine as hard as you possibly can but you still you can never really have that pure dread sense of not just being in that moment, but being in the, the raw anticipation of that moment. And Ellen Montgomery said something, and I'm going to paraphrase horribly about um, the most glorious, most awful thing about writing is nothing can ever be as wondrous or magical or as crushing and painful on paper as it was when it was in your head in the first place. Well, except, except, except the reality. Um, you know, if you've been... You know, if you've been in a concentration camp, or if you've been in prison for, say, five years, um, and you've gone past the anticipation, and you're living in the daily grind of that, um, when you actually come to write about it, what is in your head is less than what you went through. So the reality of it can be a damn sight worse than what's in your head. But what's in your head when you come to write it temporizes it somewhat. 
that is the thing that I find extremely fascinating because the day-to-day, if you've been in prison for five years, that you're waking up in the morning, the, the day-to-dayness, the moment-by-momentness of it can only be lived through. Uh, mm. once, it's, once it's lived through in one's being, it becomes this massive experience. You can't break down into those seconds anymore. Do you, do you get what I'm trying to say? I think so. I mean, I think that we've got a very, humans have a very, very interesting relationship with, with time and with hope. And I think two humans can experience the same circumstances and the same set of events in an entirely different way. But I do see what you mean. If you have been through that horror and you are writing about it, as the author of your experience, you're perhaps in charge of it and in charge of how much you you reveal and how you relive it in a way that you had no control over when it was actually happening. Also, it has become, it's the way in which experience um, gets transformed in one's being afterwards. So if you're writing about it, presumably you've survived it. And if you've survived mm. it, it means that you have simplified it in your in your being in some way, because otherwise you'd be you you you'd have gone mad. So whether it's people who've lived in famine, whether it's people who've lived, lived through civil war, whether people who've lived through whatever it is, but the minute you've survived it, it's very hard to go back to the to the day by day horribleness of it. So it's as if the mind simplifies, abstractifies this horrible experience. And the real difficulty is actually then going back to relive in order to write about it. But in doing that, you're, you're, already, you're, already, you're already simplifying the outlines of, 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 of what, was un, what was unbearable. It's a very, very, very strange thing. And so writing itself is a, is a generous act of the forgiving of one's experience, if it's horrible, and uh, a multiplication of it in some way, if it's not. Oh, that is beautifully put and very moving. I really, really like that idea. Thank you so much for being so generous and thoughtful and interesting and for all of these incredible responses. I think this has been much more sort of wide-ranging and philosophical than any um, interview I've done with this podcast before. Um, before we go, I'd love to hear um, if there's anything other than the, the Proust uh, that you are excited about reading or looking forward to reading, if there's anything. I don't know if you have a book pile. <laughs> Well, I got, I got, I got four or five. I got five more volumes of of, of the Proust. Each one is about six, seven hundred pages. So <laughs> you need to come talk to me in in, in about two years' time. I think it'll take me about two. <laughs> I think it'll take me about two, three years. Focusing on the Proust. At the moment. Yeah, I go, I go to bed. I go to bed with him. I kind of wake up with him. I read. I read bits of him through the day. Um. I'm yeah. I'm just. Just. Just completely in that world. It's what. It's what. It's it's what happens with a long novel. You. you with a, with, a, with a short novel, you, you, you can't quite get that feeling unless you read very, very, very slowly, uh, which I love doing as well, um, like sometimes a paragraph a day. But with really, really long books by, you know, someone whose mind is, uh, who's, by someone who's interested in everything from buttons to, to the constellation, from how needles are made to the uh, extraordinary nature of women's dresses, um, and he was... Um, with, 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 with such a mind, you, you're not reading for pleasure. You're just reading to find out how the mind is, how this person's mind is working today on this new movement um, of, of this amorphous story. You're not reading for story. You're reading for something actually more fascinating than story. So perhaps if we've all got into our reading comfort zones and we want to get out of them after the last 
you're in a bitch, we all need to start reading a la recherche. Wow. Now that's that's a big adventure. Maybe it's maybe it's yeah. maybe it's time you took your your first um, step into Proustland. I think you're right. I think I'm ready. Um, I'm definitely. I know um, you are no. Um, <laughs> you're not taking recommendations, and you're not giving recommendations. Absolutely but I feel not. Like that's a strong recommendation. Oh, am, it's not. It's not, not a, no, it's not a recommendation. <laughs> no, I'm just. I mean, I'm just. I'm just. I'm just offering you a drink. I am. Well, I'm. Um, accepting with alacrity um <laughs> ben it has been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been lovely talking to you daisy huge thanks to ben every leaf hallelujah is published by head of zeus and out now you can follow us at why booked on social media look at the book recommendations words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies we love it when you share the podcast with your friends thank you so much to everyone who has left us a five-star review it helps other people to discover us and new books you can find a list of all the books mentioned by ben at acast.com booked and check out his selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org we'll be back next week but now i leave you with this from renata adler that right is right is meant to be self-evident. People like to say it. I find it is hardly ever true. Writers drink. Writers rant. Writers phone. Writers sleep. I've met very few writers who write at all. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.